Hello and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 10, recorded on the 16th of July, 2017. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And Chris isn't here, he's on holiday, so we've asked Ryan to step in, and thank you very much for doing that, Ryan. No problem, I'm housed here at the System76 headquarters. I'm, I've got everything set up, my whole command center, three monitors, a mic, you know, it's just all, I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm ready and I'm willing. Nice. I was going to mention System76, but you just literally couldn't wait, could you? No, 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 of course. <laughs> okay, well, let's start with Fedora 26, which has been released. And there's kind of a few not that exciting things like GCC 7, Golang 1.8, Python 3.6, and loads of under-the-hood stuff. Uh, but there's also a new GUI for partition editing in the installer called Blivit GUI, which isn't that new. It's been in the repo since Fedora 21, but now it's kind of in the default live image. So have you given Fedora 26 a go? I, I haven't given Fedora 26. I was using Fedora 25 for a while, um, just playing around and seeing what, what was available there, but I... I have not yet tried this out, although I probably will. We uh, played with it here a few times, especially since kind of this is, this will be later. But since we started working on Popover at System76, we've been looking across the entire, you know, Linux distribution landscape to see where people are doing things well and trying to emulate that. I'd be really curious to see the partition manager. I can't find any pictures of that. And I, I tried looking earlier, too. Um, I'm not sure if I'm just missing the link in this release or, or what, but, uh, have you, have you played with it yet? Yeah. Well, I always would do the advanced partitioning because it's usually on a test machine that's got several partitions and it looks pretty good, but in terms of functionality, it was a bit lacking because I've got a logical partition and it wouldn't, I could, well, at least I couldn't see a way to enlarge that to add another partition for Fedora. So I had to put in one more primary and then that was the maximum number of partitions for the um, for the disk. So that means I'll have to delete Fedora if I want to install anything else. So that wasn't great. Um, but it, it looks good at least, but I just, I'm used to using Gparted basically. It's that, <laughs> I would always do that or, or even the partition editing in uh, Ubiquity as well. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I was kind of just looking through the release notes here uh i think i remember last week was it matt was talking on linux unplugged yeah he, he spoke quite a lot about it um and uh, to me there, there's nothing hugely exciting about it but in a way that's good to me I, I don't think huge changes are good really i think that it's it sounds like steady improvements and just progression with new packages new kernel that kind of thing and a few features here and there but nothing massively exciting right the thing I'd be most interested in seeing is if there are any changes to uh, Wayland and how it interacts with uh, applications. Like, I know that I've talked to Alberto Ruiz and some of the guys over at uh, Red Hat about the work that they've been putting into to that effort. And I don't know if any of that was scheduled to be in this release, but I just know that they've been putting a lot of time and effort into Wayland and and how that interacts with applications. Like right now, you can't really do screen sharing in a Wayland session and, and other things like that, just like little things that I'm wondering, like what the progress of that on. I bet Fedora is a great way to keep up with 
you know, without Wayland development and see what the new and shiny is. Uh, so I definitely will have to pull it down and at least play around with, with the Wayland session and see if anything has changed. Uh, because right now I use Wayland every day on my, um, pop system and, uh, for the most part, it's pretty stable and it's a good experience, but there are little tiny things that that I'm hoping that <laughs> are getting addressed, and uh, I want to see how they're implementing it in, in Fedora, and if that's any different. Yeah, well, Fedora really blazed the trail when it comes to Wayland, so yeah, I think you should definitely check it out. But another story that developed shortly after this was that there is a proposal by Justin Forbes, who's one of the Fedora kernel maintainers, to drop the 32-bit kernel because essentially hardly anyone is using it, hardly anyone is testing it, and it's just time for it to go, basically. I have have been skeptical, shall we say, about dropping 32-bit support in Linux, but I think the time is coming, and we've seen it with Arch, we've seen it with Tails, we've seen it with various other distros. Do we really need 32-bit support anymore? Frankly, I have not used it. 32-bit system for probably a couple years now, maybe longer. I, even in systems that, you know, are rocking three gigs of RAM, which I know isn't the only difference, but I I still have been throwing 64-bit on them. So I don't know between myself and my family and my friends of anybody who's using a 32-bit system, although now that I said that, probably any... (laughs) My friends who are listening to this are, will probably ping me and let me know that they are. But if it's just a, a lot of extra work for them and they don't have a lot people who are doing this regularly, enough people who can test out and make sure everything's working properly, then it's better to drop it than to offer something that hasn't been thoroughly tested. So, uh, and that's, then maybe that's not the case, but based on kind of what's in this, article it seems like there might be some problems with QA and maybe not enough of that happening and so I think that it might just be time and if somebody is really really passionate about it maybe they can pick that up and take on that project yeah I mean the thing is on the desktop it doesn't really make any sense anymore the only thing I would say is the 32-bit atom machines but even they're pretty long in the tooth at this point but I would say that with atomic Fedora Atomic, that might possibly make sense to have a 32-bit version because if you've got a lot of VMs running and you want them to be as small and lean as possible, then it might. there are some circumstances where it would make sense to be 32-bit. But yeah, I think really that that's a pretty edge case. So yeah, I think it is time to uh, move on from 32-bit now. Well, let's move on and talk about Unity, or is it Unit? Y-U-N-I-T. It's the worst name I've heard since pop underscore OS. <laughs> <laughs> and so that is the the fork or the continuation, I suppose you'd say, of Unity 8, which Canonical famously dropped earlier this year. And yeah. it is now available as an overlay repository for Ubuntu 16.04 LTS, which I think is good news for them because you need to start somewhere and the LTS seems like a very logical place to start for me. And I've tested it out and it didn't work very well at all. But you, as I say, you have to start somewhere. I don't have a great deal of faith in 
unit or unity as uh, well as having a future. Put it that way, because without the great resources that Shuttleworth brought to Canonical as a community project, I just have to wonder who is really interested in Unity Eight. Yeah, I am patiently watching. I'm in the Telegram channel as well. Uh, I don't really have any feelings on it, only because right now I'm not sure where this project will end up. Like, when I think about people deciding on a distribution and on a desktop environment, I don't know anyone beyond the people who are in that channel, you know, who are actively contributing to it, who have told me just in, uh, you know, little Linux user groups around and uh, some of my friends who I talk to online, none of them have said, yeah, I really want to give Unit a try. Um, maybe that'll change now that these packages are available for the LTS. Maybe, you know, someone who's running that will pull it down. And um, I might throw it on one of the test machines here at the office just to look at it. But I'm just going to reserve judgment until I see where the project goes and what their big overarching goals are. The main thing is the applications that are built for Unity 8, I'll call it Unity 8 because unit is weird to me. Yeah. Um, I'm worried that there won't be that many native applications beyond the core ones that already exist. And maybe I'm wrong. I could probably spend some time like looking through their documentation and see if anybody's creating new applications for it. But I think as far as interest goes, I think maybe at least among the developers I know who are developing applications for it, a lot of their interest for developing native applications died along with Unity 8, uh, Canonical's, you know, backing of the project. Yeah. But, you know, they seem to be <laughs> chugging along, so I could be proved wrong in this, and, and in a few months we might be talking more and more about the project. But uh, I think we're, if my honest opinion is I think we're looking at a gnome world for the foreseeable future. Well, you would, wouldn't you? But yeah, I think that this and Uberports, now their community efforts, I, I really want them to succeed. I want convergence to happen. I always wanted it to happen when Canonical were paying to develop it. Now it's out in the community. I think it's probably going to take a lot longer, but it would be great to have a, a phone that is a serious competitor to Android and have convergence working and have one device that I can have all my Linux desktop and phone needs taken care of. But um, yeah, I think we'll be waiting a while for that. So uh, here's hoping. Yeah, if I was going to bet the farm on an alternative to Android, I'd be much, right at this very moment, I'd be much more comfortable saying that Sailfish would be that before I would say Unit. But I know some of the guys working on it and they... They are driven and, you know, they, they have a lot of passion for the project. So that's why I have to reserve judgment because they could prove me wrong. Yeah, here's hoping. Well, let's move on and talk about Ubuntu being in the Windows Store. We've been talking on various Linux shows about the Windows subsystem for Linux for a while now. And now Ubuntu is a Windows app. What, what kind of topsy-turvy, bizarro world are we living in when I can say that, that you know, okay, you have to be enrolled in the Windows Insiders program and you have to be on the latest build of Windows, but Ubuntu is in the Windows App Store. What is going on? Honestly, 
I've been thinking about how I feel about this for ever since it was released, and I still don't know how I feel about it. I can't determine whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, or it doesn't matter. I, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts because, I mean, I know this story is specific to it being in the App Store, which is interesting in and of itself, but I had a very hard time formulating an opinion on this specific feature in Windows. Well, I feel ambivalent, I think. I think most of us do, because on the one hand, there's a chance that it's going to expose Windows users to Ubuntu and therefore Linux and therefore free software and open source and all the rest of that. And they might be using this instead of SigWin. And therefore, they might realize, hey, this Ubuntu thing is actually pretty good. But it's not desktop. They, they've never said it was going to be desktop. I saw some people complaining in the reviews that uh, X11 doesn't work. Well, it was never supposed to work. You can hack it and make it work just about. So I read. But yeah, I kind of feel ambivalent because I'd like that to be true. But I think the reality is it's it's more a case of people who are dual booting because they've their games or some other stuff they need. And they don't really use the Ubuntu partition that often now basically don't have any need to use the Ubuntu partition. And so they can just go Windows full time. And I think that's what Microsoft's game is here. I think you're right. I think that, well, I, I remember talking to one of the guys on this project at OzCon, I think, last year. And uh, I remember he was an Ubuntu user. I found that pretty interesting. He was working inside Microsoft, but he was using Ubuntu full time. And this is obviously just anecdotal, you know, story of me talking to a guy, but he, he just found it really interesting work and thought it was good all around for Linux because it exposes more people to Linux. But listening to you raise the point that, that yeah, there are going to be people who use Linux and they, and they feel like they need to be able to use that bash environment on Windows that are going to simply stop dual booting because, you know, they, or, although in those cases they might have a virtual machine, but point is, is that there's a chance that they might stop dual booting because, hey, I've, I've got it right here. I've got everything I need. I've got apt. I've got git. I've got SSH. It's, it's all right here. And, and that's all I needed. The other side of it that's exciting though is that Linux is popular enough among developers that this is something that Windows and Microsoft felt felt like they needed. You know, I, I don't know how exactly that worked. I think uh, there was a blog post on it, though, from Dustin Kirkland, where it talked about how, you know, they they started talking about this, that them being Microsoft and Canonical, and ultimately, you know, work together on this. If that came from Microsoft, that's really interesting. That That shows that they felt a distinct need to have a Linux user space in Windows for certain types of customers. And I think that would speak to what thinking is like inside of Microsoft as far as courting those developer customers. And so that is the more interesting side of the story, I think. But um, I'm curious to see if we have any people talking, telling stories on their blog about, you know, using Ubuntu it, from the Windows store and then becoming a full-time Ubuntu user or if we see anything that's the opposite of that. Um, I, I'm just really interested in seeing how this plays out. 
DigitalOcean.com. Sign up with the promo code Here's the Thing to get $10 credit. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way to spin up a cloud server. And you can do so in 55 seconds. And with prices starting at only $5 per month, that means you can get two months free if you use the promo code. Here's the thing. They've got data centers all over the world, and they've got a great simple interface for dealing with your droplets, as they call them. And they've got a great API as well if you want to script it. Loads of the JB infrastructure runs on DigitalOcean, and I've been using it for years personally. And recently, they've introduced high CPU droplets. The thing is, their standard CPUs are pretty powerful, but now if you need that extra bit of performance for your application, then they've got Skylake and Broadwell Xeons for the absolute maximum performance. So whether you want just a small next cloud server or a hugely powerful Linux rig out in the cloud, go to digitalocean.com, use the promo code, here's the thing, and get $10 in credit to get you started. As of July 13th, uh, Ike is working full-time on Solus, and uh, that was his first day. And, and uh, he posted to his Patreons that, you know, thanking them for their support. And uh, frankly, this is awesome. Another person, <laughs> I think another person working on, you know, Linux full-time is is great. And Ike is such a smart dude that that uh, I, I've been watching his stuff as well, trying to see if there's you know, what, what's coming out of it that frankly system 76 can use. And so I'm, I'm very proud that the community was able to come together and, and do this for him. Yeah. We did talk about this, I think four episodes ago on Linux action news, but Ike is my friend. So I thought, uh, while Chris is away, I'll slip this one in again. And as you say, this is just great news. He had been pretty happy at Intel. Uh, well, very happy actually. And he'd learned a lot, but the time had come. And now he's full-time with it. And um, Solus is a great distro. And the development has already uh, just massively accelerated. And so I think that this, you know, he he was doing this as a part-time job. And now it's his full-time job. It's going to mean great things for Solus. And as you say, probably for the rest of the Linux community as well. Because you've got Budgie. And also there's a lot of the technicalities, the the under-the-hood stuff with Solus, which I think a lot of the other distros could benefit from if they... um, integrated that stuff like the uh the bulletproof boot and stuff like that so if you do want to help him out check out patreon.com slash solus and throw him a few bucks a month eh? yeah and i i wanted to add to that um some i've heard some people say like oh you know another another project we don't need this blah 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 but none of this happens in a bubble you know i just from personal experience working in a linux company a linux focused company when these projects are around, we never knock them here because we're always looking at, okay, how is this project doing this, you know? And if there's something great happening there, then the rest of the community can adopt that and, you know, contribute to that. And it just makes Linux as a whole better. So if you're interested in seeing what they're, what, what Ike's up to and what the project is up to, you know, check out its GitHub and, and throw them a few bucks if you can because it'll ultimately benefit everyone. And I say that about Solus, I say that about Elementary, I say that about Ubuntu Mate. You know, we're we're all the <laughs> a rising tide ri- raises all ships. So yeah, uh, supporting these guys really does make the Linux desktop as a whole better. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about a Linux desktop with which you are intimately familiar. Um, there's been an update this week from System76. Who are they? On pop exclamation mark underscore OS. 
Now, from the blog post, it says of the GNOME work that you guys have been doing, CalDAV and CardDAV work continues, but uh, the deeper we've dug, the more hard coding we've found. Now, that is something that concerns me. Concerns me, and I've, I've heard that concern from a lot of people. You guys have taken on a big, big challenge here to create your own distro, even though it's based on Ubuntu and basically Ubuntu GNOME, and it's not that different at the moment, but you have taken on a lot and it seems that you are slowly realizing that fact. I think we realized it from the get-go. We talked to a lot of projects before we jumped in. For instance, we're really close to the elementary guys. And so we had conversations about what we wanted to do, especially with GNOME online accounts, which is what we're talking about here. And so we already had set aside some resources for this, specifically with GNOME contacts and GNOME calendar and Geary and those applications that should be using the evolution data server and sharing, you know, this information. In many cases, they've implemented how they talked on GNOME online accounts slightly different. And so I don't think that it's really unexpected that we have to do a bit of work. I guess it is kind of surprising that there wasn't a single implementation for this type of stuff across these applications, but we have one of our engineers, um, David, working on this pretty essentially full-time right now. And so he's going through and doing a lot of plumbing on this. We've also teamed up with Elementary. They've been making a big push with Pantheon Mail to implement the Evolution data server in Pantheon Mail. And so we're looking to see how they're doing that and, and talking to them about where we can work together to kind of do some of this plumbing and, and shared applications. Okay, and also this installer situation it seems that you guys are not a fan of ubiquity which is by far my favorite installer and you don't like one specific bit of it which is the bit that i really like and that is that it's very linear you stick all your information into it it finishes reboot done log in start using it whereas the gnome way to do things by default is to do a little bit up front and then once you booted for the first time then you put in things like your uh, locale and uh, username and, and passwords and all that kind of stuff. I don't know why you don't just use the OEM installer, quite frankly, because that is it. You know that does it for you. Yeah, we do use the OEM installer. The OEM installer still prompts you to do some things in Ubiquity that we decided should be in normal initial setup. For instance, I remember when we started this conversation. It actually started because of the Ubuntu mailing list, and they were saying. There are things in Ubiquity that you do that you then end up doing in GNOME initial setup. And that's really quite weird. <laughs> and so, because even the first time I tr did it, I was like, why am I filling out this information twice? So we were having conversations. And at first, we were actually on the opposite side. We were talking to the to uh, uh, Jeremy Beecha and we're saying, why isn't this all in Ubiquity? And then over time, as we played around with GNOME initial setup more, we decided, oh, wait, okay, so let's say that you create a new user. You could run them through some of this GNOME initial setup stuff so that they can set up things specifically on their account. Like, for instance, if they do want a different keyboard layout or something, they as a user can set that up specifically. And then as we went further down that path, we realized, well, Ubiquity could be paired back to where it's only handles things that are specific to an installation of a machine. And then on first boot, a person can set up 
the rest of their stuff through initial setup. And it just seemed, as we played around with it more, it seemed like a better user experience. And so, because you might have, like in the case of me installing something for someone else, I might install, do some complicated partitioning or whatever, and then hand that off to a friend or a family member. And then when they go through a GNOME initial setup, they're setting up the things that they understand and that they're ready to do. And so I feel like it had to go one way or another, you know, because inputting the same information twice during setup, being installation and setup, seems strange and, frankly, I don't know, doesn't really make much sense because you're like, oh, you already have the information. Why don't you just skip this? And so it had to go one way or another, and it seems like the proper way is to have the installer handle installer-specific stuff, have the GNOME initial setup handle the user configuration stuff. And I think we found a fine line there, and I think that that's probably the best way to go. Fair enough. I disagree, but I can see the arguments for it. So, yeah, okay. So uh, let's uh, wrap it up with Beaker. Um, And reading from uh, a motherboard article here, the concept behind Beaker is similar to torrent file sharing, a user can create a site on their local machine by opening a menu and clicking a single button, which creates a folder on the hard drive that can be shared over the internet with other Beaker users via URL. So this is a browser that aims to completely decentralize the web. Now, you could say, well, the web is supposed to be decentralized anyway, isn't it? It already is. Why do we need this extra thing? And the argument is that you've got things like AWS and Azure and you've got centralization happening. Um, so, I mean, the technicalities of this, I don't think we need to get into. It's pretty cool. I've tried it out. You do have to build it from, uh, you have to clone the Git repository and build it. It's not too difficult to do it. Um, this is clearly just for developers at this stage. It's not for consumers. But for me, the what's interesting is the concept here of a, a decentralized web. Do, do we need it more decentralized than it is? I, I don't know. I, I'm struggling to, to see the argument, really. So on uh, ironically, on Motherboard, there's a documentary, a short documentary. I think it's like 20 or 30 minutes long that features my friend Isaac. He was working on... Um, at Occupy Wall Street. And uh, it's covered pretty well there. He talks about, you know, how the web is is a lot more centralized than it once was and how when it comes to things like things that companies may not feel comfortable with being on the web, it's very easy to shut them down even if they're just a instance of free speech or or whatever, you know, not necessarily anything criminal. And that got me thinking more about this back, that was in 2000, I don't know, 12, that, that we started talking about this. And so uh, I've used ZeroNet. I've used, um, I can't remember the name of the other one. There's another popular one now that's, you know, part of this decentralized web push. Uh, I haven't used Beaker, but I have seen it before. I've seen the project page, I think. I think, honestly, this is moving the world in a positive direction. I don't like the idea of like any good Linux user, I suppose. I don't like the idea of losing out on on my my freedom because some company says that this doesn't meet their content policy or or you know, you could have AWS say, we don't want this hosted on our servers, whatever. And uh it could be not necessarily like I said, criminal or anything. It's just something that they don't want to have to 
to defend, you know, like when someone says, like, why do you host that on your infrastructure? So I think this is ultimately good and as a positive thing for for free speech. I as far as like which one of these projects will raise rise above the rest. This looks cool. Zero net looks cool. They all look cool. I don't like them being browser specific, though. And I, I don't think ZeroNet is, but you have to run like a script and and you have to, I think you might have to use Firefox, but I would rather just have it be something that you can access. Well, that's the thing. There's a huge barrier to entry at the moment and you have to be very technical to do it. The idea of normal people using this stuff is, it feels a long way off. And that to me is what we need to crack. It's all well and good to have it in a nice technical implementation that works well if you know what you're doing but it needs to be as simple as open chrome type in address or google search the thing that you're looking for and open up website right right i agree 100 percent. i think that will be the barrier i could see this being really helpful for journalists too and i say that in a more broad sense you know people who are covering things that that a government or company may not want out in the open and so i think ultimately it's a net good for technology and society but yeah the barrier to entry is pretty high and some of the people who would benefit most from this may be among those users who find it difficult to set this up and and get started (laughs) that's something they'll have to be overcome before this really takes off yeah well time gets away from us so we'd better wrap it up Uh, you can check out linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes and linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch And don't forget you can support the network as a whole at the Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash jupitersignal. I'll be back with Chris next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Joe Rissington. And I'm at Ryan Lee Sipes. Thanks for joining us and thank you, Ryan, again. And we'll see you again next week. Bye.